Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to see so many of you here today. Um, there are, are always, as always, whether it's in the classroom or any kind of event, there's plenty of seats in the front. Everyone always try, and I, I realized I do it too. I mean, I've been teaching here for 20 years and I do the same thing. I'll go into a room and I, I sit in the back myself. So I think it's just kind of something that we do. Uh, my name is Mary Fifleis Dunkel. Um, I teach history and political science and sociology, and I'm also the college's study abroad coordinator. So shout out to that. Um, and I will allow my, my colleague, Jim McIntyre to, want to introduce yourself, Jim. Sorry, I don't want to be speaking for you. Morning, everyone. My name is Jim McIntyre. I'm just a history prof here at the college, um, and I serve on the Moraine Valley Learning Academy. So that's all I've got. <laughs> and uh, Jim and I, um, and I'll, we just wanted to kind of give you a brief little background about how this, how we we ended up com uh, coming here today. Um, Jim and I and our colleague, I saw Josh here somewhere. Where Josh, there, there's Josh right, right in front, like literally in front of me. This is the whole glasses context conversation that we just had. Um, we had a department meeting, um, but I think it was about a month ago, um, and we were talking about the fact that um, there's so much misinformation out there uh, that's been circulating. Obviously, not just pertaining to October 7th. There's just misinformation in general on social media, but particularly since this has been happening. And I'm sure many of you have been hearing about things about videos that, that are believed to be correct videos that end up being that not being correct, um, that end up being falsified. Or uh, And so this concerned us as, as history faculty. And so we talked about the idea of, of putting on a presentation um, where we could at least give you just some, some, some historical context, some background, because that's, that's what we do. Now, um, Josh was the Yoko Ono who broke up our band and didn't come up with us, but he was busy, so he wasn't able to do it today. It's fine. We love him anyway, but he's here in support, and so anytime you want to jump in, feel free. Um, but we are but we are very happy to be with you here today. And uh, if we, if you do have questions about things that we're going over, um, if you'd like to, if it's about something that we're covering right then and there, and you want to just ask a contextual question, please go right ahead and do so. If it's a question about like kind of a wider issue, if you don't mind waiting till the end, because we do have a lot to cover just to make sure that we get to the end. Um, and then we, we're free. We've got microphones. Um, we're happy to take any questions that we can take. Um, we're not afraid to say if we can't answer something, we can't answer it. We'll just, we'll let you know that. But um, we're, we're very, very happy to have all of you here. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, and, and get started. Anything else I missed that we need to say? No, I think that's All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn the, we just have a first uh, slide here. Uh-oh. Did that work? Did that work? Uh-oh. What happened here? See? Already. I'll just use this. We are experiencing some slight technical difficulties. Oh, it's because I'm in WebEx? Because I'm not even able to, do I need to use this to change the, sorry, folks. We'll change, we'll go like that. Yeah, I did that before, too. I thought I hit that. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. So I'm going to just do this first slide, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jim for the next few slides. But I, I put up here a couple of things. Um, the one on your right here, just to give you an idea, I used to use this one. Uh, we both have taught, that's what I meant to say. We both have taught, um, we used to team teach history uh, 230, which is history of the Middle East. Um, and I've taught history 105. All three of us, I think, have taught that class before uh, the world since 1945. And we do a unit on uh, the Middle East in general, the modern Middle East. And one of the slides I used to use, a map I used to use, was showing students how the entire map of Israel and Palestine can literally fit into northern Illinois. To give students an idea, because for us, right, we think about the idea of driving from here to Toledo is about five hours, right, to Ohio. But, you know, you're driving around Europe, you can go from one country to another. I mean, the same here we're talking about one hour will take you pretty much across the whole thing. So, or even less. But now with checkpoints, that's a whole other story, right? That's a, that's a whole other thing. Now, but if this is how Israel fits in and Palestine fits into the entire United States of America. So we're talking about a very small piece of real estate. 
um, that that is there's a lot of competition over it. On the other side um, is a is kind of a, a layout of Jerusalem, and this is just to kind of give you an idea of why this particular piece of property to use it in these terms, are, is so so invaluable and so important to people. Uh, because three of the world's major religions lay claim to it, um, have, have, a, have a piece of it, right? Uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So because of this, it, is, it holds such a, 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 a special place and such a, in some cases, a contentious place too, right? It's, it's very, very important to all three, all three faiths. So we'll be talking about that more, but I just want to like, and we can always come back to that as we need to. Um, we may have to have to go back to, I realize, because of the of um, uh, Temple Mount, but if we have to, we'll come back to it later. So I will turn it over to my colleague here. Thank you. Sorry. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, so starting out, we're, we're going to pick up at the beginning of the 20th century with the Ottoman Empire, which you see on the map behind me here, and uh, the world's longest lasting empire, actually. Okay, And, and I say that because, um, like any political unit, like any government, they had some problems. Um, they, but they also did a lot of things right, and I think that's something that ends up getting lost. At any rate, okay. Um, where we're also, you know, again, to put some context into this, we have this province, right? Um, there, there is no Palestine per se. It's a province of the Ottoman Empire, and that's how it's perceived at this point by the Ottoman Empire, which is ethnically Turkic. Okay? The leading powers that be concentrated in Istanbul. Okay, um, our rule, and again, with their power sort of emanating out from there. Uh, what starts to happen for a variety of reasons in Europe in the late 19th century, uh, and you know, I was just talking about this in my Western Civ class the other day. You know, there's this this moment at the beginning of the 19th century where Napoleon Bonaparte, who did a lot of things wrong, um, does at least this right. He, he ends a lot of religious discrimination, and he ended the practice of Jewish populations in Europe being confined to these areas of the cities called the ghettos. And, and I mention this because there's this drop in anti-Semitism across much of the 19th century in Europe. And, but then at the end of the century, there's a lot of things going on. There's, there's rapid industrialization. There's the second industrial revolution. There's a variety of pressures that are going to eventually come together and bring about the Great War, the First World War. And there's also a rise again in anti-Semitism. And within the European Jewish community, there's a bunch of different art, like ideas, plans. What do we do about this? And the person behind me, Theodore Herzl, um, advocates what becomes known as Zionism, right? This idea that we need to establish our own home state, our own nation state, in order, in, in order to have safety. Okay. And so this is going on in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, there's fundraising, and then there's acquisition of land in this area of the Ottoman Empire, but it's through the Ottoman government. Okay, and that's so. There's there's real estate transaction. There's sale and purchase, which is is an important difference. Come the Great War in 1914, um, and again, the Ottoman Empire really doesn't want to get involved. Um, they don't real. They're not going to benefit much. Uh, they do, but they have ties to 
Wilhelmite Germany. They have ties to the German Empire through trade and, and an alliance, and they're eventually persuaded to join into this. And, and leaders in the Ottoman government kind of know, hey, we're not ready for this kind of thing, and, but they get sucked in anyway. And the reason I mention that is, right, during this conflict, um, again, the, the powers that are fighting in Europe Britain and France against Germany, look for ways to knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war. But also, and what you see behind me, um, we talk about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. There are a number of agreements that are going on, backdoor notes between the diplomatic services in France and Britain, and this is one of them. So basically, while the war is going on, they're saying to each other, all right, this is what you're going to get when we win, right? Like they're already dividing up the spoils, right? And the other thing, the quote on here actually isn't from Sykes-Picot. This is from the Charter of the League of Nations. But the reason we include it is if you look at the underground passages, you get a really solid idea of that imperialistic view that they're holding on to, right? This is what we're going to do. And we being France, Britain, and these other European powers, okay? Right. And, and then at the same time, right, or almost the same time, so Sykes-Picot is 1916, right? And by the way, um, the British have also negotiated separately an agreement with um, the man who becomes King Hussein of Jordan, <laughs> okay? Like, okay, if you support an uprising against the Ottomans, we'll make you king. Again, imperialist view, you know, imperialist king-making going on. And then a third agreement, or third understanding, as they would put it, right, comes in the Balfour Declaration. And you see the text of it on the screen behind me, which is basically you know, um, the British government agreeing to support the founding of a Jewish home state. Okay? So this is all going on during the war. Okay? Um, the Ottoman Empire collapses during the conflict, and so there, there is this... There are these machinations that come up between 1918 and 1922 of dividing up what had been the Ottoman Empire. And so for that, to you. All right. And just to kind of piggyback off of what, what Jim was just saying, there's just, you know, and obviously we're looking back on history, right? You have to take history in the context of when something happened. We're going to look back on it with a critical eye. But at the time, if you think about just the kind of the level of high handedness of this, right? So you're looking at this map here where you see Transjordan, Syria, the French mandate, Iraq, the British mandate. And not only this area here, I also want to echo, and I thought about it afterwards, I should have maybe pulled up an entire world map to give you an idea of how much the whole world was colonized by basically just a couple of countries in, in Europe. So much of Africa was carved up in the late 19th century. They were like, you know, you guys take this part. We'll take this part over here. Uh, well, you know, and, and it was pretty much whatever's going to suit them, right? Um, we'll, we'll, create, we'll create this part of the world for us and this part of the world for you, not taking into account who lives there. We'll create this this British mandate in Iraq, taking you know um, uh, Baghdad and and uh, Mosul and, and create these kingdoms. Like, what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> not not and not thinking about maybe we should ask the people who live there how they might want to to do things. So that's that's part of the big problem. So the British find themselves in a bit of a pickle, right? So as this is all kind of now carved up, you now have an influx of 
Jewish refugees leaving uh, leaving uh, Germany and leaving Europe, trying to get there to this to this land to kind of live there, um, and you're starting to see tensions heating up in the area. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead a little bit here. I've got a, a kind of a timeline. Um, we were talking about just kind of how to make sure we could make this as clear as possible. So Jim already covered um, 16 and 17. Just to kind of give you this context, right? Hitler becomes um, uh, is Chancellor of Germany. Um, I say elected, you know, Chancellor of Germany in 1933, um, and then you start to see this crackdown of, of of Jews and and communists and homosexuals and anybody who's considered like you know not to be Aryan in in Germany throughout those years. Now, one point that I think we can make it here, we can make it throughout, we can make it at many many different places. Um, where were these were these people supposed to go? These Jewish refugees. Some of them tried to come here, and as you could, I'm sure they were welcomed with open arms, right? Yeah, no. Leaky boats, there's stories about a leaky boat making its way over here and with Jewish refugees turned away and sent back to Europe where many of them end up perishing in the Holocaust. Um, and so this was the story kind of all over the place. Now, um, World War II, World War II begins, uh, we just wanna kind of, again, just sort of give you the timeline. The Holocaust, of course, these, these horrible things that happen in between um, with the ending of the Second World War. And then there's, we're gonna get to the events now in, in between these two, because there, there's some, some, some big ones here. Now, so again, once again, the British and now the Americans are asserting themselves even more because now the end of, of World War II signals a, a shift. The old powers that be, your Britain, your France, but they're starting to kind of diminish in power. And now it's the Americans and the Soviets who emerges them as the major powers. And so the, the Americans are pushing the British, well, allow those, those Jewish refugees to go into, in, into Palestine. Let them go in there. Why? Because they don't want them coming into the United States. They're not welcoming them, welcoming them to come here. So let them go someplace else. Not, not on our borders, right? Not, on our, not, not in our land. Um, and so the British now find themselves getting, getting um, uh, attacked by Palestinians who are uh, upset with what they're doing, and now also Jewish militants who are upset with what they're doing. So they're getting it from both sides. So they say <laughs> it's costing them about 40 million dollars, 40 million pounds, excuse me, per year to maintain what they're doing um, in, in Palestine. And they say, you know what, I think we're just going to kind of leave this up to the newly created United Nations that takes over at the end of World War II in response to the League of Nations, which had been what was a kind of a disempowered body. The United, the United States never actually joined it. And in the aftermath of World War II, we said, OK, we have to have a much more powered organization. Um, and so the United Nations um, starts in, in April of 45. And so the British say, thank God, <laughs> let's turn this over to them and, and let them kind of deal with it. And the UN comes up with a partition plan for Palestine. And what you see before you here is this, is this plan. So, um, here we go. So you, well, let me turn this way so you guys can, it's the part with the microphone not being. So we've got um, the, well, the color is not good. I'm sorry, I could see it on my screen. The color on here is, is not good at all because this is the West Bank. You can barely kind of make it out here. Gaza over here, um, Egypt, this, so the, the land is in this very faint yellow. And I never understand why these maps never have better contrast colors on them. Like it's, it's very odd to me. They're always like these same shades of different of the same color. Um, and then Jerusalem would be an international city. So this would be Palestine basically, and then Israel in, the, in sort of the white with Jerusalem being an international city um, with its determination to be decided later, which is kind of something that it said again and again and again. Uh, but because of the fact that it's this flashpoint, that it's so important to all these three major faiths, they figured we need to leave it as an international city. But events don't end up, end up trans transpiring that way. Okay, so the British end up withdrawing, leave it to, leave it to, to the United Nations, and within basically 
ours, right? Um, Zionists have now declared that Israel is a, a nation. They declare independence. They call it their Independence Day, May 14th, 1948. Now, I could declare Moraine Valley Room 1, Moraine Room 1, as Mary Fifi's Dunkel Room. This is my land. You're all my serfs, and I'm in charge of this entire room, right? Now, if nobody else recognizes me that I'm in charge of this, this is in my head, and I'm not in charge of anything, right? So, so Israel um, basically declares itself to be this, this, this nation state. And there's a difference, difference between being a nation of peoples and a nation state. A nation state means that you have, a, you have borders that are recognized by other countries that are considered to be sacrosanct, that those are your borders, and they are recognized by others, that they are not to breach those borders, right? So Israel declares itself to be a state on, on May 14, 1948, and within 11 minutes, Harry Tr President Harry Truman became president after Franklin Roosevelt died uh, towards the end of World War II, um, uh, recognizes Israel as a country and many other than uh, countries and bodies follow that. Now you might say, why did he do that? That might be the question as to why he did that. Now, by the way, uh, his own State Department was unaware that he was going to do it that fast. So he put it out there and it was like, oh, okay, this happened. Um, so his reasoning, Harry Truman's reasoning was, I have many more Jewish constituents than I do Arab constituents, and I'm gonna do what benefits my, my Jewish constituents. And again, also don't forget, this is, What's going to happen to all these now, these refugees who are, are, those who have survived the Holocaust, where are they going to go? Where are they supposed to go? We don't want them to come here, right? So where are they going to go? We'll make a land there. I forgot to mention this because Jim and I were talking about this and almost laughing at the absurdity of it. At one point, the British had their plan. They were going to make a, perhaps create a Jewish state in Kenya. Now that's in East Africa, for those of you who may not, in case you're wondering where that is. Like, it's literally, it's almost absurd. We'll just, we'll make a country there. We'll put them, again, what could go wrong? We'll just put these people there. What could possibly go wrong with that? So, um, so, so this is where we're at. So within 11 minutes, uh, the, uh, the United States recognizes it, and, uh, and five states then end up, five nation states, Arab nation states surrounding Israel end up uh, invading. Do you want to um, also, uh, in, I keep this is not working. So we get the, this, what the Israelis call the War of Independence, um, and so we end up within a year with these armistice lines. Um, and one thing you'll start to see at this point is that the price of peace is always land. Okay. Um, and then what Palestinians refer to as al-Nakba, right, the catastrophe. Um, refugees, people driven out, and, and you know, there's plenty of pictures in the in the sources we looked at in the books, right, of these yellow deeds to lands that were usurped in the process of this. But it also brings up another one of these major sort of stumbling blocks starting here and moving forward. What about the right of return? You know, if there is a negotiation, if there is a solution, then what's the answer to that question going to look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. And as soon as... Uh, sorry, we have... A, we actually oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. The question, is, the question is, what do you mean by the right of return? And then that's an excellent question. So you have Palestinians being driven out of Palestine into these can basically cantons, if you will. Okay. And, but they own this land. It's theirs. They're being exposed. Basically, they're being evicted right, off of their land. They have keys. They have deeds. They yeah. Have, yeah. Well, it, if you're, what's the answer to that? Like, in other words, if you 
make a, a peace agreement, shouldn't they get back their property? That's right of return. You get to return to the area that was yours. Yes. And you also had people fleeing also, um, well, I'll get that, get yeah. that afterwards too, but yeah. And so before even the state of Israel is created, I've got this uh, on here about the uh, Dyer Yassin massacre that occurs before. Um, and, and so all these things are, are, are horrible memories that are entrenched in the minds of Palestinians um, and, and, and start to set this up, right? And so and it just, it, it escalates and escalates from there. And 750,000 is within the first, the first year. And within the first year, you have roughly about 700,000 uh, Jews who are moving into Israel. And so, the, and so now we have this issue of the right of return. You have this issue of like what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So for the time being, the way that the map looks essentially is that East Jerusalem is still under under Jordanian control. The West Bank is still under. You, you could see this one's hopefully a little bit clearer. Yeah, again, two shades of red. Of red. Does that make any sense to you? It does not make any sense to me. Anyway, um, but yeah. So if you notice on here, um, so Gaza is under Egyptian control. Uh, the West Bank is under Jordanian control, and East Jerusalem is actually under under Jordanian control as well. That's for the time being, right? So there's this very uneasy peace where there's still breakout fighting that's going to occur with these next years. Um, there's also like the, the Suez crisis, which we, we kind of said that we're going to because there's so much to cover that we're like, okay, we think we can probably eliminate that eliminate that one for now. Um, but and so for right now, like American support is support for Israel, but they're not really that entrenched in it. The British and the French still have more, you know, even though the British have kind of withdrawn, they still have more influence in that area than the United States does at this point. Right. And, I, and I think it's worth mentioning, we didn't really talk about this, life, but many of the leaders in Israel have deep roots, deep connections in British government or the British military. Uh, like the, the massacre we just mentioned, right? The Ergun were the Israeli partisans that, that instituted this massacre. Okay, they were led by Menachem Begin, who was also part of right, the Jewish Legion in World War One. So, of course, he's got connections back to, and, and something that I think needs to be mentioned in that. Um, one way the British are fundamentally different than us, one of several, um, is that their, their military, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, if you're in the British Army, you're commanded by a noble. But the, but the, when the noble's not commanding, he's in parliament. So they've got these all these connections that go on into British government, which is one of the reasons why there's this relationship that develops over time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, that's another question. Uh, yeah, no, you know what? Let's why don't we get the we get the microphone. Maybe I'll send you mine. Thank you. Just so that everyone else can hear the questions. You mentioned a massacre. <laughs> Initiated a massacre, and what was the detail? Who against who? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was Israeli right wing Israeli um, like religious fanatics. Yeah, paramilitaries who did it. Yeah, one hundred twenty thousand Palestinians. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, one hundred twenty. I'm sorry. I said, yeah, sorry. That was a <laughs> one hundred twenty. Yeah, one hundred twenty thousand. That would be yeah, yeah, one hundred twenty people at that point. And yeah, so that was and. and now, what's interesting is, as historians, we talk about this too, right? So if you read in the history books, the um, Menachem Begin is actually one of them who denies, like, that did not happen like that, absolutely did not happen. If you ask, um, of course, you know, the Palestinians who, you know, their entire families being decimated, homes being destroyed, you know, all of that was absolutely an issue. Um, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Next. Okay, so the I mentioned, oh, one thing I did want to mention is that with many uh, Palestinian refugees who were, were surround, who were flee, fleeing, where were they going? So they were going to surrounding nation states, and one of them was Jordan. And Jordan, um, and Jim had mentioned earlier the, the connection, but Jordan is, is one of the only nation states that granted Palestinians citizenship. So many of our, like my, my students here, um, friends of mine, our families have lived in Jordan for many, many years since that time. So um, that is, is, is actually, it's, it's a, I think an important point to note. Now this brings us to, oh, we actually also have this map up as well. I'm yeah. uh, just kind of giving you, I'll let you yeah. Oh yeah, no, so like I mentioned a few minutes ago, right? It, you can see the, the changes in control of territory over time from 1917 when this was still at least nominally an Ottoman province to 1948 and, and on down the line. And again, a lot of this is the price of peace is land. You know, Israel taking the land and, and even during, even when there's a lull, if you will, you know, there's, there's settlement building, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, which is, but which again, generates its own set of tensions. Mm -hmm. I should mention, because I, I see a couple of folks recording, and that's totally fine. We're recording this. So you don't have to hold this, hold up your phone the entire time. We can, we can, and we can pass this out. So we're happy to. It's being recorded on WebEx. And so we'll, we can issue out the recording to all of you. So you can actually have it. So you can watch the whole entire thing without having to hurt your hand by holding up the entire time. So I just want to throw that out there just so that you are aware it is being recorded. So, um, okay. So moving on. Um, so again, there's a lot of incidents in between that we could be talking about, but I also do want to mention the next big one would be the Six Day War. Um, and so as a, you've got hostilities and tensions that have been have been rising throughout the the last few years in the area, particularly over over water rights and control and access to water rights. Um, and so on, on June 5th, 1967, um, Israel makes a Israeli uh, military officials make a decision to launch a preemptive strike. Now, preemptive strike. We were talking about the idea. Probably most of you might understand kind of what that means, but they're they're attacking basically they're att attacking first without there necessarily having been a, been an attack on them. Um, and so th so the Israelis launch an attack against against um, Egyptian and Syrian forces, and it's called the Six Day War because it only lasted about six days. And within the six days, uh, we have a, a a major change, a triple mm -hmm. of actually this map is decently clear, um, a tripling of, even though, again, shades of the same color, but a tripling of their land. So the Israelis end up claiming all of Jerusalem, uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights, and it's the Sinai Peninsula from, from uh, Egypt, as well as the Golan Heights from Syria. So they essentially triple their, their, their land. And they start to uh, basically, in the immediate years that follow, start to build religious settlements there. And that's something that I know we're going we're to talk about as we go, but maybe you should mention it now. Just like here, there are, are factions of people within groups. And so there are, are people on the, on the far right in, in, amongst Israelis who are religious people that believe that this is, this is the land that was given to them by God, and therefore it is their right to take that land back by conquest if necessary, right? And so they are, they immediately start to build settlements in the Sinai, build settlements in, in Gaza, et cetera. Um, and this, of course, is not going to make anything, make the situation any less, less hostile or any less tense. I think another thing we need to add in, by getting into the Sinai Peninsula, this is also going to bring the U.S. and other powers back into interest because it also means that there could be fighting around the Suez Canal, which is a major artery for trade and, and communications globally. So that's going to, to kind of get us, get the, the U.S. And, and our allies back interested, mainly the U.S., though. 
Um, and also, so I mentioned those three things. And for the, from the Israeli perspective, they're looking at it as this is we're going to trade these these pieces of land back for peace afterwards, because again, they are. I mean, and from the Israeli perspective, we want we're, they view themselves right. This is their perspective. We're surrounded by nations who are hostile to us. How can we kind of use this land to broker for peace? Well, if we have this land, we can we can trade it back in exchange for peace deals, and that's essentially what they do. Um, so this is, of course, referred to as the Naksa or setback for Palestinians, because now you have a greater refugee crisis, more people that end up having to flee the area as a result, tens of thousands of more people who have to flee as a result into neighboring areas and end up as refugees. Um, this is just as, as a side note, I want to recommend, because my, I see my, my colleague Mike McGuire is here, we're office mates as well. He and I both used to use a, a film in our, our classes uh, called Promises. It's a documentary about Israeli and Palestinian kids, children that are brought together. It's between the first and second intifada. Um, and it's, it's kind of you know dated by now because it was done in the early, I think it was done around 2000, 2001. But I highly recommend if you can find it someplace, it's called Promises. And one of the most Things that I think the things that struck me the most was seeing um, a young a young Palestinian boy who goes with his grandmother um, because he's got access through the filmmaker who was an Israeli American filmmaker who could go right through checkpoints and go right to their old their old house. Otherwise, they never would have been able to make it through those checkpoints. And he's going with his grandmother so his grandmother can actually see the place that they had not been to in decades. And it's very very poignant and very very sad. So I'd recommend if you can get a hold of this. Um, it's a documentary and it's called Promises and it's very 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 well done. Um, and he happens the the filmmaker, as I said, is Israeli American who also is also fluent in Arabic. Um, and it was up for an Oscar in 2002, I think, but it did not. Unfortunately, it did not win because it was it was extremely well done. So, um, okay. So we mentioned the settlements, and these are, um, I think you, I can let you defer you on that one, sorry. So you put that oh, okay, so the set, and, and the issue around settlements is they're, they're not agreed upon. These are things where people, and, and as Mary kind of hinted to, right, I, there's no like sort of singular perspective, right? Um, there, there are hardliners in Israel who believe that they have this land by right, okay? But at the same time, there are other people there or, or it belongs to other people, and all of a sudden they find out that, no, you can't come back to the land that is yours legally. Um, and so consequently, I mean, you know, big picture takeaway, this generates enormous tensions. Of course it would, right? You know, it would, like imagine driving home from campus and someone with an automatic weapon says, oh, no, you can't come into your neighborhood anymore. It's not yours. What about my stuff? What stuff? It's not yours. Homes were demolished. Yeah. They wouldn't come back. So it, again, and that's going to generate, right, its own frictions, its own tensions. And over time, these, it also adds to the refugee situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just, you know, kind of continues to rebound on itself. Mm -hmm. okay. So, and that brings us to uh, Ramadan, Yom Kippur. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in this, right, um, Egypt is, is looking to get back Sinai, and they are were very well organized. Um, they planned this very well, right, um, to kind of take advantage of religious holidays uh, when people are not expecting anything to go on. And, but um, after an, again, as we have here, after an initial defeat, right, Israel rebounds, um, and again, notice in bold, right, 
a couple of things. Um, the, the sort of global picture, right? On one hand, this is going to get pulled into Cold War dynamics because the Soviets are supplying Egypt and Syria with weapons and so forth. Um, but by the same token, for the first time, you know, um, OPEC and the oil producing states in the region flex their ability by doing the oil embargo. Okay. Um, and, and again, that's, they find that economics can be a very powerful motivator. Um, whereas a lot of times, you know, like, truth be told, I, I do have vague memories of this. I, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm old. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Uh, but I was all of four and I still remember summer of, it would have been summer of 73 and just waiting and in the back seat of the car, it, it was no seatbelt because it was the seventies. Uh, right. But waiting in this just like seemingly, you know, incredible line. So my dad could fill up his car. Mm -hmm. You know, but it, but again, and I mention that because that's like the sort of basic day to day level. But of course, is, you know, our governments around the world going to take notice of something like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. And all of a sudden, this is going to become a more prominent issue. Um, and so. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. Sir. Yeah. And, and as as uh, as Jim mentioned, so this was because the Six Day War was this humiliating defeat for the Arab states. They were you know, looking to try to kind of rebound, regain some of this land. And then when things start to kind of go sour, Egypt then turns to its its ally, the Soviet Union. And just to kind of, we were talking about this before, hopefully some of you have, have an idea of what we're talking about, but the, the Cold War is this kind of this, it's referred to as a Cold War, right? Because it's this it's a war that the Soviets and the Americans never fought one another directly, but it was a war over ideals, idea, well, I mean, we, we could be, yeah. A war is over ideology and, and, and whose political system was going to prevail, whose economic system was going to prevail, who had the better gymnasts, who had the better weapons, right? All those things. Um, but this now becomes, as, as Professor McIndoe mentioned, a Cold War fight. Because now the Soviet, the, the Egyptians are like, well, let's bring the Soviets in to try to help negotiate the peace. And the Americans are like, what? Nope, absolutely not. So the picture that you're seeing before you is, is um, uh, President Nixon with Henry Kissinger, um, his Secretary of State eventually, who ends up becoming, basically engaging in what's known as shuttle diplomacy. He's kind of flying all over the place trying to, trying to engage um, partners. And so he, they, he recognizes an opportunity. But if the Soviets are on the ground there, there's absolutely no way that they're going to be allowed to be on the ground there. And this actually raises um, the United States now ends up stepping in further and is airlifting supplies into Israel. So there was, because before, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, the French were oftentimes supplying the um, Israelis with weapons. It's after around this time that the Americans now begin doing that work and are supplying, are, are air supplying weapons to Israel so that Israel does not lose because they're they're not doing too well those first, that first week and a half or so. Excuse me. <clears throat> And so once it became, but once the, the Americans get wind of the idea that the Soviets might actually be on the ground, absolutely not. And this actually raises the nuclear threat goes from DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. Now, meaning that we were a step closer to going to nuclear war with the Soviet Union. This was a hard line. Absolutely no, you are not going to be, there will be no, you know, no boots on the ground there. Um, and so now this is, as, as he mentioned, so now what, from Israel's perspective, um, they can do something that also Iran has done too, right? When it was, when it was ruled by the Shah, they are Cold War partners. So when they're doing things, they could be doing in the name of the Cold War, right? And it's, if it's anti-communist, right, it's against the Cold War. Um, and they could, they could do it easily because Fatah and, and some of the, the Palestinian groups were also Marxist too, right? So they could use that to their advantage. They say, well, they're Marxist. And of course, that also helps fill that narrative as well.
So, and yet I, I, the OPEC oil embargo, I, I, I don't have, have memories, but I do, uh, I do remember sitting in the car without the seatbelt. That part I can remember very, very well. Um, that's that's uh, not good, not safe, not safe at all. So, okay, and then, oh, yeah. But again, this is, you know, because of the raising stakes of this, it generates more of a push, as we mentioned, for U.S. involvement, but also to, you know, end, like, basically kind of tamp down on this theater because again our main foreign policy concern is the soviet union mm -hmm. and so there's you know you start moving forward we take an active role in supporting negotiations trying to bring some kind of end to this conflict in the region mm -hmm. which then leads us to this this next photograph that you see um the gentleman on the left is anwar al-sadat who's now the president of egypt the man on the right is Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel. And uh, Jimmy Carter senses an opportunity, the president in the middle, uh, to broker a peace deal because Sadat realizes that, okay, if I want the Sinai back, we're not going to get it through military means. It's going to be through peaceful means. We have to try to negotiate for it back. So he ends up taking an unprecedented step, and he becomes the first Arab president to fly to Israel. He makes this surprise move, flies to Israel, and speaks before the Israeli parliament. Um, again, you know, national politics, right, nation-state politics are going to trump Pan-Arab unity, right? So that's recognition. Right. It's the first, Egypt becomes the first Arab state to recognize Israel's existence. And so that, and, and again, for, that might sound kind of trite to a lot of folks, um, but in, in the circles of diplomacy that, and, and in real world things, like it's just, oh, I write, you know, yeah, it exists. It's there, right? It's like saying, you know, I recognize the existence of Mary's cup, right? And no, it's really there. But what that means is now you're going to negotiate. Um, you're going to talk with them, right? You're going they the more legal status in international terms and so forth. So that that recognition factor, because and I mention it, I'm kind of going off a little bit on that because it comes up and will come up again. Uh, and what we're talking about. So recognition, recognition diplomatically is a pretty significant thing uh, in the international arena. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so in, and also I should mention, Menachem Begin also goes to to Egypt as well, and they start opening up negotiations. Carter invites them to Camp David in Maryland, and they they hold these negotiations. And basically, in exchange for, um, you know, the. Is, Egypt recognizes Israel. Israel returns the Sinai Peninsula, agrees to get rid of the settlements that are in the Sinai Peninsula, which is a big deal. It talks about, at a later date, we'll, we'll revisit the right of return, right, for Palestinian refugees. We'll discuss that later, which is something that's kind of, you know, kick the can down the road kind of thing that we do a lot. Um, and that happens kind of again and again, same thing with the status of Jerusalem, et cetera, um, but in exchange for peace. And so they, they have this historic meeting on, on, on the White House lawn. They sign it. They're shaking hands. And in, in 1981, Anwar al-Sadat is assassinated by an extremist from his, from his own side, right, from, from an Egyptian extremist who is unhappy with the fact that he has signed this peace agreement with Israel. And the same thing is going to conversely happen on the opposite side for Israel a few years down the road. Um, but after that, you start to see the United States offering as an inducement to peace, right? Money talks. Billions of dollars in aid for Israel, billions of dollars of aid also for Egypt. And so for years, and I'm not sure if the if the number is still the same, it was like Egypt and Israel were like our number one, number two recipients of American foreign aid. Um, and that started at this time in 1979.
Oh, yeah, I just heard a report this morning that last year was the first year since 1979 that Israel wasn't the number one recipient. It was it was actually Ukraine last year. But in that sense. same report, they mentioned that Congress already approved like a 14.3 billion dollar aid package to Israel this as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a continuing connection. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure about Egypt as of right now. Let's see. Let's try it again. There we go. Okay. Okay. And so again, we have more as as we're moving forward, right? More land acquisition. Um, and so this brings us. There's there are other events going on, but again, for we, and especially in the region, you know, um, there's the Lebanese civil war. Uh, U.S. Marines are deployed to Beirut, right? There's the attack on the Marine base there, and our pullout, and and you know for Domestically, Cold War, this was a real sort of black eye uh, for the Reagan administration. And but again, that's we decided not to really include that for time. It's it's there. Um, then in 1987. All right. So what's going on um, in Gaza? One of the way one ways Palestinians can survive, make a living is going to work in Israel. Okay, so there's a lot of traffic back and forth into and out of Israel, at which at that time was there there weren't the checkpoints, there wasn't as much of the security. And but again, I think what what actually sparks this is a fairly it's a traffic accident. Okay, um, an Israeli truck driver hits a vehicle with pal with Palestinian workers in the back, and you know six of these workers are killed. I mean, you know, un uh, unfortunate. Tragic, but something that you would see kind of every day in the traffic reports, right? Um, but this sparks a major uprising in Gaza, which again speaks to the idea, like, okay, what kind of tensions are already there? You know, why was why was a seemingly minor incident, very mundane, the spark for for this uprising that goes on for roughly you know close to six years, um, involves mass protests. Right, strikes. So again, economic sort of counter counter assault on Israel because the labor that Israel is depending on in things like construction and so forth, it there isn't happening. So it's kind of shutting things down, boycotting trade, uh, violent clashes in the streets, right? And you see the the figures up there um, during this, yeah, right. Um, and again, disproportionate use of force. Okay, which is why we we kind of included this image. Um, Sorry. Just the you know. Um, Protesters throwing rocks and bottles, the IDF patrolling streets with tanks. That's a that's incredibly disproportionate. Okay. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention too with this, so in, in Egypt, one of the factions is known as the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're a very conservative extremist group. Um, and they see an opportunity in this to other way. Um, basically get involved in politics in Gaza. And so they back the founding of this group Hamas in Gaza. Okay, which now you've also got Yasser Arafat and you've got, you know, the PLO, but they're starting to negotiate. So the, there's this opening for a more sort of radical, more militant group um, to support the the Muslim Brotherhood's agenda abroad. And so they take advantage of this, okay, and Hamas is formed. 
And then we might be able to come back to this maybe. Okay. That. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, which then brings us to, to 1993. So as, as Jim mentioned, there were negotiations taking place behind the scenes. Um, and uh, that some were that were negotiated by there was a, a peace conference in, in Madrid. Um, and, and sometimes when things happen on the quiet without people knowing that's when things can be done. You know, things can be advanced the furthest, right? Um, and so one thing that's probably interesting to, to, to note is the idea that um, the PLO were kind of in, in a weak position. The Palestinian Liberation Organization was in kind of a weak position at that point because of their support of Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War um, in 1990 uh, against uh, the, the United Nations um, uh, back, the United Nations War. Coalition. Coalition, thank you. Excuse me. And so they were kind of in a, in a weaker position, so they were willing to negotiate. Um, and as negotiations went on, actually, um, President President H. W. Bush's administration did something that that I have not heard of previous administrations doing, which was showing a willingness to withhold aid to Israel in exchange for getting them on board to negotiate. Um, and that willingness to, to hold on to that ten billion dollars in aid kind of pushed the Israelis also a little bit forward too, as well as I think also kind of a weariness of this of this going on, you know, as long as it was going on for. Um, and so eventually, uh, this it's, it leads to this historic moment that that President Bill Clinton wanted to kind of recreate on the lawn of the White House the way that that um, Camp David was with President Carter. He even uses the same desk that he brings out. And so who you're seeing there, you're seeing uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, um, Israeli Prime Minister, shaking hands with uh, uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Yasser Arafat. And it begins, no, the PLO ends up becoming known after this as the Palestinian Authority, the PA. So if you hear those terms being used interchangeably, um, the government wing is now more referred to as the PA, the Palestinian Authority, not the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So in exchange, the Palestinians agree to recognize Israel. Um, in exchange, the Israelis with, agree to withdraw from Gaza and Jericho on the West Bank, and the Palestinian Authority now is able to take some control of, of the West Bank. And of course, I'll just make one more point, everything else is going gonna, is gonna to be decided, right, later on. The same things that we said before, the right of return, Jerusalem, kind of kicking the can down the road. And, and when you hear that, you probably think like, well, again, they're going to, sometimes in, in, in peace, peace negotiations and within history, sometimes time is needed. And that sounds horrible when you're in a situation where you're seeing your own Either your friends and family that are involved, or your own your own land involved, like it's horrible. But in order to get people to a place where they're willing to negotiate, sometimes and you know, and this was kind of the right place at the right time that they were able to make these negotiations with Oslo. Uh, but again, the major issues of refugees, settlements, etc., were you know they were they were being discussed, but they had not they were agreed to talk further in future talks. Well, and I to, to dovetail on that, I think another part of it is you know if if you can get to a point where people. There's just a sort of cease of hostilities. Um, it allows for that cooling off period to really address the because the the issues that are getting pushed down the road are are the more complex and nuanced ones. And so there is a certain value to to take to taking some time. But it's like when you keep sort of pushing these and pushing these, it generates attention all their own. Mm -hmm. You know, but it, when you just sort of okay, let's stop fighting and cool off. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Having three children, right? Time out, <laughs> and and then we'll come back and talk this through. But again, I think there's there's something to that idea, so that cooler heads prevail. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and again, so what we have, right, is initially in '93 in Washington, and this is Bill Clinton's big moment, right? And and again, you know, the one administration sort of sets the process in motion; the next one completes it. Um, yes. You know that we have this agreement in Washington. But it, notice, right, it's a declaration of principle. 
So th these are the things we are going to work towards moving forward. And then in Egypt, right, in 95, there's the Oslo II Accords that were, you know, supposed to set up this roadmap to peace that people were supposed to fo then follow, right, various steps on both sides that would be taken that would end in a lasting agreement. Mm -hmm. And in the picture that you see there, it's from the Nobel, um, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Yitzhak Rabin, um, Perez, and uh, with the foreign minister, and, uh, and Yasser Arafat. Unfortunately, later on in 1995, I think it was in November of 95, um, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. But again, he wasn't assassinated by a Palestinian. He was assassinated by an Israeli extremist, a right-wing Israeli extremist who was upset about the idea that they were going to be giving up too much. Right, giving away land that should be Israeli land, promised to them by God, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is you're kind of you know seeing a pattern that a lot of times the the you know can, extremism and, and the backlash can come from within, um, as, as with yes, with Sadat and also with with Yitzhak Rabin and Rabin. And again, these are these are people. All these like Rabin and um, Menachem Begin. These were all, as, as Jim had mentioned, these were all uh, people that had been generals and, and fighters in the Israeli army. So they weren't people that were you know started off as, as peace-loving as peace-loving folks, right? They were in the army, but they were at, at later points in their lives realizing that for Israel's security, they, they needed to negotiate. So after your Bean's assassination, uh, you have some, some years of uh, where things are shaky now, right? Um, there are suicide bombings of, of Hamas inside Israel, Israeli responses that are oftentimes disproportionate to, to um, what's been done. This tit-for-tat violence going back and forth, back and forth, until we get to... Um, I'll come you want, you want to do that now or I'll come back to that. Okay. Until the summer of 2000, um, where, you know, Bill Clinton, who now, and just as a side note, has been president of the United States for eight years, he um, helped negotiate a peace in Northern Ireland. And, um, and it was, uh, uh, he's very, very proud of that. And uh, as he should be, because it brought after 30 years of, of, of struggle in Northern Ireland, uh, a peace agreement that has continued to last to this day. And on that vein, he did not want to leave office not having completed the peace agreement with uh, with, Israel, with Israelis and Palestinians. So he summons Prime Minister, well, he asks Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat, Prime Minister Arafat, to come to uh, Camp David again. Um, you know, there's a nice little place, quiet place in Maryland, the retreat to go and talk and try to, get, and try to talk through things. And the interesting, the, the pictures that are so interesting that are taken as like official photographs that you look at is, they're they're talking. They're eating, you know, they're eating dinner together. They're having they're having meals together. And these are the behind the scenes things that most people don't see. They're engaging in dialogue. When you're engaging in dialogue, you're not fighting with one another. Um, and ultimately, though, this ends up being a this the summit is not successful. But and, and I just wanted to yeah. add in there is also a famous clip, and I'm sure you've seen it, mm -hmm. where. Um, I believe it's Arafat starts to walk. They show the three of them walking back down the path, like we're going back into the negotiate. And Arafat starts to kind of drift off in one direction, and Clinton kind of reaches over. I think it's that pulls picture. Him, I think pulls him back in, like, no, 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 we have to keep talking. Yeah. So it's clear that they're, like, even, even in sort of the material, the images for public consumption, there, there's some rough spots here. This is not going well, mm -hmm. and it does eventually collapse. And ultimately, when when the according to uh, um, things that have been written, that Yasser Arafat made a comment to Bill Clinton about, um, you know, that I'm I'm sorry we're not able to reach agreement. That that Bill Clinton basically said that that basically I that he 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 puts the blame on Yasser Arafat for not accepting the deal. However, probably from Yasser Arafat's perspective, had he accepted that, he perhaps would have even met a, met a fate that 
had happened to Yitzhak Rabin himself, or perhaps the dot as well, um, as it is, you know, perhaps the deal that he was bringing home was not going to be, um, would not be seen as, as, as enough, um, or begin to go away too much. Um, which then brings us to the second intifada. Second intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, which is, so, oh, we need to go, go all the way back to the beginning. The beginning one, yeah, here. Yeah. Um, as we were talking about, as Mary was talking about at the start, right, Jerusalem is, is central to three faiths. Also, specifically, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, right, the Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mount, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Okay. And the, the latter is one of the most sacred sites in Islam. And so the idea is what's, what's sparking this, right, Ariel Sharon, who is, was he prime minister yet? He wasn't prime minister yet at that point, no. Um, leads a group of conservative right-wing Jews into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, sort of, you know, declaring that this is part of, you know, our sacred site. It is designed, that is an event that is designed to be incendiary. There is no, like, misinterpret, there's no way to misinterpret that. And so it starts off this second uprising. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have repeated that slide. Let's go back over here. And okay. I went too far. So, and and there we go. Next. There. And next. Next one. Okay. So... That's what we mean by Sharon's provocation, right? You, you have the period of this uprising um, and, and a number of things that happen here, right? Now, no, now, again, let me back up real quick. Notice the time, right? September 11th is going to fall shortly in, into this. And the reason I bring that up is um, here you see Yasser Arafat Airport. And this was designed to be an economic boost in Gaza, right? This is going to boost tourism. This is going to boost trade and so forth. Um, this is going to be a lifeline. At this point, you see it under construction using 9-11 as pretext, okay? This is what the IDF does. Um, they first take out the radar and communications, citing it as a security threat. Another thing that happens during this intifada is um, restrictions on the Gaza fishing industry. Again, a major economic provide. And, and, and the reason we keep coming back to economics in this, right, if you think about it, economics is its own freedom, right? Like if you have, if, if your country has a robust economy, you can do a lot of things that you otherwise can't, right? But in each of these cases, right, they're being limited. You see, right, areas that are being limited, um, the fishing areas are limited off the coast, right? And the justification, again, as you see here, um, is to reduce weapon smuggling. Okay, but it, again, it also creates uh, this economic dependency where many of those living in Gaza now need to, you know, to, to feed their families, need to find work, and the only place they can find work is in Israel. Okay. Because these these two domestic sort of economic generators have either been taken out or drastically reduced, mm -hmm. um, and and in addition, right. we build a wall. Right, and so um, you know now, as, as Jim mentioned, the September 11th attacks, and now gives Israel the pretext to be able to say that. So it's kind of like the way the Cold War gave, you know, the whole communist excuse. Now we have the terrorist excuse, right? So if they want to take their own actions. It's within the context of the war, the war on terror. 
Um, and most of you were kind of born around that time or after that, as that was already going on. So you, you probably don't remember kind of a lot, a lot, a lot of what was going on. Um, but it, it kind of gave, gave that hope that replaced the Cold War essentially as, as the, um, um, that's what I'm looking for. I can't, can't think of the word I'm looking for. But as they be, the justification, yeah, the justification as, as that, that the Cold War had given. Um, in 2002, then Israel starts to erect a wall, a separation barrier. Now they claim it's for their security purposes. It's for peace to kind of to make sure that that um, they can keep um, suicide bombers and uh, out out of Israel and secure peace for 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 themselves. Palestinians label it as a land grab. That it just it so happens that the way that this is kind of going, that some areas are all of a sudden this nice little bit of land over here that's really arable land. We're just going to kind of include that inside the inside the fence, um, and you know some of the best land is is, is also kind of taken away. Land that has a water source on it. Right. So suddenly, for 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 a a particular uh, security purpose, this land needs to be included inside the wall, and so the the wall is is built over over a number of years. Um, it's still up there today. I know they I actually think only recently they were still actually adding some. Um, some parts to it, but this was also met with contention. Um, the Israeli Supreme Court actually had some things to say about it. They actually were saying that that they had to be careful about where they were building it and not, you know, to not be taking too many parts of, of Palestinian land, and they had to be fair. So there are like. And what did that lead to with the right <laughs> Israeli Supreme Court? Right, right, and we could actually we could talk about that too. Um, but just the the oh, I want to just kind of bring that hold that home that point that just like here, just like anywhere, there are different viewpoints. There are Israelis who who actually have like there are are human rights um, workers who actually very firmly believe that that the Palestinians have been treated poorly and that things need, need to be improved. Um, so they're, they're, people are not a monolith, right? They don't always vote one way or act one way. Um, you know, people are, people have have different different beliefs. So not everyone was not every Israeli was in favor of this separation barrier. Yeah, this okay. is an interesting one. So yeah, and and again, Sharon, who was the the provocateur, right? Um, then does like a 180 in 2005, right, and starts talking about Israeli disengagement from the settlements. Um, again, a very extremist right-wing politician in Israel, former military leader, right, all those sort of criteria. Um, now, and so there, he proposes this, as you see in 2003, a few years later, it gets through the Israeli parliament. And, and so this seems like, oh, this is a possibility, right? Here's someone who has, uh, who's going to have a lot of clout with the, the sort of extremists on one side doing something that is going to be, you know, supported by probably moderates, certainly people who are more liberal thinking and say, hey, we need to find a, a solid way to peace. Um, but in the application, you run into the difficulties, right? Mm -hmm. So when the settlements are abandoned, all industry, all, everything of use is kind of removed. Um, okay, and so there is this, you know, start of this withdrawal, okay, and also withdrawal from these settlements, seen as very positive. But in, and again, internationally, like what we hear about, right, is that Israel has agreed to give up these settlements. What we don't see is that, well, everything of any use is also being removed with these settlements. So, yes, you get the land back, but things that made it productive are, are gone, okay, which creates its own, you know, is it really a viable solution? And clearly, no, right? You still, you, again, develop these tensions, leads to more violence, and you see here on this map some of these, some of the areas that were actually returned 
right in blue. Do I have to go back for yes. just a second? Just to, sorry, I just want to point out that the picture for those of you, if you're realizing that that is um, Israeli police that are removing a someone who is is uh, protesting at the destruction of the settlements. So that was just so again, this was like met with a lot of resistance from the far right on the Israeli side, uh, and maybe something like that had to come from someone like Ariel Sharon. But to also put it in a an American context, notice that that every every American president pretty much tries to put their stamp on this on, on, on the Israeli Palestinian issue, right? They try to be involved, whether it is um, like the roadmap for peace under Bush and, and that was also included, um, the EU, the UN, Russia, et cetera. But every president has tried to kind of negotiate a settlement to this because they feel like that, you know, it's almost like if they could do that, they're going to be like maybe, you know, if, in, in multiple things, have that picture like the Jimmy Carter has and, and that Clinton has, but also uh, also do a, obviously do a very good thing. Um, but yeah, so, so Eric Sharon then shortly thereafter ends up um, having a stroke within, I think, within the next couple of years um, and passes away a few years after that. Um, and then things begin to change, um, shift in, in and Gaza. And we should mention too, in Gaza, right, the, Israel puts it under blockade in 2005, which they, they say is temporary. Um, but then in 2007, and this was, this was kind of surprising, Hamas wins the election. They become right, the, the recognized legitimate political leadership in Gaza, at which point Israel makes the blockade permanent. Again, you know, we don't like this group in power, so we're going to use this economic means to try and force you to do what we want you to do. Right. And after infighting with Fatah, the, the, the Palestinian Authority wing, they end up seizing. Now, I want to just make a point here that because this is something that Jim and I were discussing too. When people vote for, you know, and this is something that we've heard like kind of in, in, in more recent times too, well, people are voting for Hamas. But you don't know why people, sometimes a vote for someone is not necessarily a vote for them, it's a vote against also the people the, that, other, that, side. the other side. So it's not always necessarily a vote for the, the people who are running, it's sometimes a vote against who's also already in, in charge. And if people felt that maybe if, if the people who've been in charge already have not been providing what they were, should be providing, uh, they're going to turn to maybe those people who are promising things, and that's kind of universal of anywhere you're at um, in the world in terms of in terms of politics. Are we done with this one. Yeah, Finish that. Yeah. And so that brings us to right. Um, 2008, Hamas announces a truce. Right, let's negotiate um, or announces an end to the truce. Sorry, they they had been involved in some negotiations to try and gain recognition. Israel has, you know declared Hamas a terrorist group, so but they're trying to engage in some dialogue. That ends, you get this return of rocket attacks, but then you get, you know, res again, disproportionate response, right? Rocket attacks into Israel, jet bombers flying over Gaza. Um, and then, yeah, and, well. Yeah. Uh oh, you let the cat out of the bag. So <laughs> what you see in this picture, we, we talked back and forth, should we bring this up? So. Um, one of the things that, that the IDF uses in Gaza, what you see behind these people here, white phosphorus rounds. Um, so basically, they're, in theory, this is one of those sort of, they're semi-legal. There's certain, let me put it this way, there are certain things that you don't do, right? And even in war, you don't use certain weapons that were developed, right? Like mustard gas, had, you don't do that. Right, it's considered the mere use of it, even if it's on other armed combatants, is considered an atrocity. Okay, um, 
And white phosphorus is, is in this sort of gray area there because it can be used at night as an to illuminate an area, right? When it, when it hits the atmosphere, it glows very brightly. And so you can, it gives you a spotlight on everything. Okay. But clearly, right, this is not pitch black. Um, and, and it's being, and, and now when it's used against people, it will burn through your clothing. It, it continues, it continues to burn as long as it gets oxygen. So you can imagine what it will do to people that it comes in contact with. And obviously this is a, a what they call a starburst round. So it's, it's not choosy, right? It's not it, anyone it hits civilian or not civilian or military is going to suffer enormously. Okay. Mm -hmm. And because we're, we're at 12.05, um, I know we want to make sure that we've got some time for questions. Um, we do have the slide up here about the Helsinki bid for UN recognition. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah and, and again, um, I'm sure, well, we remember this on campus here, right? From like August of 2011, um, when Mahmoud Abbas brought the idea up initially through October when it got official sanction in the UN, right? Recognition of Palestine. Um, recognition of Palestinian statehood by the United Nations, okay? Um, and again, this is one of those, now you have, a, you are no longer sort of sitting on the sidelines at the UN watching things happen, right? You, you have greater voice in this organization, which in theory should lead to greater responsiveness on the part of the international community, okay? Um, and then the only one last thing that, uh, that we were going to, I talked about, with the Hamas rocket attacks, but we also want to mention, and we didn't put a slide with it, that during the Trump administration, another big, oh, yeah. a big moment was uh, that President Trump's administration recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, something that, that Israelis had asked for for a very long time, and has moved the capital to Jerusalem since then, which was a big kind of no-no that every, every other president had kind of shied away from. Um, so that is a, another kind of, you know, major prov provocation in, 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 uh, in, this, in this ongoing struggle. So. With that, I think we kind of want to open it up since we only have about 10 minutes, um, although we, I think we can both stick around for a little longer if people have yeah. questions, but we wanted to open, be able to open up for questions. So we talked, I think, long enough. <laughs> so, questions. You just mentioned capital. Are you referring to embassy? Yes, the, the, US, the U.S. capital. I'm sorry, the, the um, Israeli capital, which was, I'm um, sorry, the question was about the capital uh, I was referring to. I'm sorry. Thank you for, for asking that. About the idea of, of Tel Aviv was always considered to be the capital, and now the, the capital was moved to Jerusalem, some, which is, again, because of its status as these three different faiths, you know, hold it so dear, uh, to move it there was seen as kind of a, of a, a provocative move. So. I thank you very much for doing this, and I appreciate it. Um, there are some things I would like to recognize. I know one of the maps you said, well, I really can't see the outline. And I, I saw the source under, said BBC. Uh, to a lot of the Middle Eastern folks, I represent one of them. Uh, that's the problem. One of the issues, and I know you're just bringing a timeline, and this is nothing against you folks, I just mentioned, is the fact that the reference of history is brought from one side. And the fact that history is recorded in that perspective. Take, for example, how throughout the lecture, the mentioning in history as well, the terrorist group. Right away when that keyword is used, what do people do? Boom, they're the bad people. Even though Hamas is the only group to stand up for the people, the only people in the world to stand up for the Palestinian people. Therefore, when they're labeled terrorists, I mean, show of hand, Middle Eastern folks, 
How many people are offended when they hear that Hamas is a terrorist group? I, I personally feel, because they're the only ones fighting, but however, that's how it is recorded in history. The reason the BBC probably blurred out the lines is for the same concept, that the land is not even defined, the Palestinian land. Oh, no, 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 uh, the map, we could see it on our screen perfectly clear. Oh, sure, make a point generally, yeah. even from the beginning, and I saw how the progressive parts, and I, I hope I don't take too much time, but just some key things. The other thing is, throughout the repeat of the history, as you mentioned, first of all, it, it's not their block, not their house. They were given that land by somebody else that didn't belong to them. However, there is another thing when you mention the Zionist group or the Zionist movement. For us, they're a terrorist group. Never it's associated in that perspective from the Western history or record. They are a terrorist group. They terrorize. That's what has been happening through history. Yet the label is not there. Therefore, for the uneducated, for the people that just heard of this event or just growing up, they don't associate the Zionist group with anything except liberators for the IDF or for Israel and fighting for the Israeli rights. And then one last point in a recap. Israel fought its all its neighbors since its existence. True or not true? Throughout history. And I, I would like to know if it, that's the historical fact. They fought all their neighbors, every time claiming land that didn't belong to them originally. But the recap is history keeps repeating on itself, repeating over and over and over and over. Same events, same situation. So if you can recap on that, that would be great. Yeah, we've, Thank you. I, I'll be never one to say that history repeats itself. I tend to say that, that Right. History doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? People do things that, that, that make history occur, right? History, like some events don't just happen on their own. It happens as people make decisions and do things that, that create history to happen. So it doesn't just occur on its own. Um, to go to the, the BBC point, I just want to, it's funny because I, I was talking with, uh, with some of my colleagues before it started, and I was saying how in years past from teaching this, the BBC used to get labeled as being um, anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli because they were seen as being too pro Palestinian in their coverage of it. And now it's interesting that in, in more recent months, I've been seeing kind of the opposite. They're being labeled as that they're being anti-Palestinian. And that's, it's interesting because in, in years past, they were, I, they were always seen as kind of more as an objective kind of leader. But in terms of the maps, I just want to make this point. All maps that we use in our classes and geography, they tend to use, it, it has nothing to do with, uh, they were not trying to blur out any color. We could see it very, very clearly on our monitor. It's just that on the screens, this happens to us all the time on our, on our monitors. It, the colors are not as clear. So there was no intent. I want to make that extremely clear. There was no intent to, to, to blot out um, that the, the um, land that was intended to be uh, Palestine. So I wanted to just make that very clear. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions? Oh, yeah, we got a, um, sorry, Elson, is there a, Kevin, yeah, thanks. That's okay, he's got, we've got a microphone because just for the sake of the recording, it helps. So thank you. Uh, yeah, so, uh, of one thing that I was really wondering was like, um, right when, right like towards um, in like the 1940s when Israel was like established, it was mentioned that like the U.S. automatically recognized them. I think you did. You mention that the U.N. was also recognized. Did like most members of the U.N. also eventually? Yeah. Um, I was Not I can't, I just kind of kept on wondering like in the U.N. perspective on some of these things, mm -hmm. like the U.N.'s recognition of Palestine, like the U.N. members' are recognition of Palestine before. Uh, they were voted in as a UN member mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So during this whole time. I was kind of wondering if you could fill me in a little bit on that. 
Sure. So I would just separate just for the sake of just kind of make the clarification. So the United Nations, if we're talking about the General Assembly um, voting to, let's say, recognize like so that's, that's one that's one thing right the general assembly are those that issue resolutions about things they issue the resolutions about um you know ceasefires and resolutions about about um recognition of, of they'll say we strongly urge all parties to come to you know that kind of thing or condemnation or condemnation of events etc the un Secu the United Nations security council is the is the the body on the un that that wields power yeah. right that's that that contains uh the united states russia uh, uh britain china um, France. These are all the victors of World War II. So, and, and there's been discussion over recent years. And there's also also revolving uh, members that, that revolve over time, then they can make up, if they come together, they can make up an extra, a sixth vote. But each each country has a, a veto over the other one. So in other words, if, if, if let's say the United States were to, to uh, say, we want to, um, you know, put up a resolution to condemn China for XYZ, China can veto it. Right. So when there was a, a Security Council resolution recently regarding the, the conflict, the United States vetoed it because there's the power to do so. So I want to kind of delineate between, you know, the, the United Nations is kind of a big organization. Yeah. So it's not just only like just the, there's general assembly, there's, there's different bodies for refugees, the high commissioner, high commissioner for refugees. So there's, you know, for human rights, there's many, many different bodies for children. It's, it's not just one one yeah. thing. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't trying to get that across. Sorry if I made it. No, no, no you're not. I'm trying to say it for them. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. We yeah. were saying like, oh, that's a good yeah, question. I was just wondering also like, just in terms of how they, how members of the UN kind of perceived the events that happened. For example, um, what's what the Israelis government referred to their war of independence, the Nakba, and then as well following after the Yom Kippur War, if there was any sort of resolutions or if there was any talks about that within the UN. Oh yeah. Yeah, there were multiple yeah. resolutions that were that were saying like cessation of 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 hostilities and and restoring land back to the 67 boundaries and um I can even give the numbers. I've got the the numbers of the resolutions, but yes, there were multiple ones. Yeah. And you're talking about a couple hundred countries, right, that are that are members of the UN. So they're all going to have kind of some differing views, but many of them are are um supportive of that. Please. And and I think like something else to keep in mind with that is in the General Assembly, and there have been a lot of condemnations of Israeli actions towards Palestine and Palestinians. Um, but and, and but they again, their statements, and and that's I think what Mary was driving at, right? With the they only have real their their own. Well, I shouldn't say that. They have they're there. They're in the record and so forth. And their condemnations, and it's basically saying that like the international community doesn't doesn't approve of what you're doing. Yeah. Okay, um, but when it comes to the use of force, it's it's those five members on the Security Council that can authorize that. And and, and again, peacekeepers. Sorry. Yeah. And so when when it comes to that, you if you have one veto, you can't do anything. You know, like when, when whenever we teach 105 or, or you know modern modern world history, right? A great example of this is the Korean War because the Soviets had walked out of the Security Council, okay? And that, and the, and China was represented by Taiwan, nationalist China. It was the, and it's the last time Russia ever left the Security Council because you did have a unanimous vote to use force. And that's the last time it was that done that easily. Oftentimes, there's there's going to be someone, and it ha it has nothing to do with maybe the the nations that are, it has nothing to do with Palestine, right? It has something to do with China derailing someone else's policy for their reasons, their national interests. Yeah. 
Yeah, I see that we're, so we are actually, uh, we can stay. We're out of, we're, we are at times we want to give people who need to leave like the chance to leave, but I don't, we're we here. can stay. Yeah, we, we have no we're problem. We can stay for a little longer if that's okay with all of you. So, so first of all, I want to just thank you all for coming. Yes. Thank you very, very much for coming. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh, so, yeah, if you'd like to stay, stick around and, and shed some more. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. But please, yeah, please. Sorry, I know you had your hand off. So, yeah, please, please stay. We can, we can talk, talk some more. Could I wait for them to leave? Maybe just for yourself so you can yeah. hear yourself think. <laughs> it's up to you. If you I, we can, I can hear you. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I just did. Yeah, we're good. Oh, and. Yes, and thank you, everybody, to all of our colleagues who also attended, and many of our ministries, our deans, and, and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much as well.